This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, February 28th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Bluegrass announces 2024 festival schedule. Telluride tightens parklet regulations. No sweat at the polar plunge. And a mountain weather forecast. A blizzard one day with warm blue skies the next harkens back to the weather of Bluegrass 2023. And in perfect timing, Planet Bluegrass announced its schedule for the 51st Telluride Bluegrass Festival this week. We always try to bring some new stuff in there and keep some things traditional and focus on bluegrass, but also some of those genre-bending artists. So I think we're feeling really good about it and we're just so excited that everyone knows and we get to start now talking about the details. That's Grace Barrett, Director of Communication and Partnerships at Planet Bluegrass. Bluegrass this year will kick off, as always, with a set from Chris Thiele. Thursday, we'll also see Danny Paisley, Sierra Hall, the Langan Band, Big Richard, the Telluride House Band, and Madison Cunningham. Headlining Thursday will be Charlie Crockett. He played at the Folks Festival in Lyons last year and just blew us all away. It was amazing, so I'm so excited for his bluegrass debut. Friday will bring Larry and Joe and the Poe Ramblin' Boys, which Barrett says is not to miss. If you're like, I'm a bluegrass purist, I like that traditional stuff, I think an earlier on in the day set that's going to be awesome is the Poe Ramblin' Boys. They've got a really cool sound um, that I'm really looking forward to. Friday we'll also see Chatham County Line, AJ Lee and Blue Summit, As We Speak, Leftover Salmon, Elephant Revival, and the infamous String Dusters, back under the lights after playing Bluegrass's gospel set last year. On Saturday, after the band contest finals, the Fretliners, who won the contest last year, will take the stage. also won the Rocky Grass Band Contest, which is they're the second band to ever have done that. So it's certainly not very common. And they are on like such an upward trajectory that I would say absolutely worth checking out. They've got a new album that came out in September. Um, but it's cool to see like, you know, how how much traction they're getting and and just that, that they have such a, get a great response from the crowd. So I am certainly Really looking forward to that set. Broken hearts are bleeding. Your memory drowns the sound of lonesome rills screaming. I'm a drifter. On Saturday, there will also be Sister Strings, the Little Smokies, O.C. Elliott, and the Punch Brothers. But Saturday is always a Sam day. We love Sam, and this is his 50th anniversary. So we celebrated our 50th anniversary last year, and Sam Bush has been every single year since the second annual Telluride Bluegrass. So that's really fun. We're kind of thinking about what special things that we can do to honor him and the influence that he's had on bluegrass as a whole. Sierra Farrell will open for Sam Bush, which Barrett hopes starts a new tradition. Sierra Farrell last year really was just like, just so incredible. 
And I've never seen a crowd like in the afternoon that like jazzed and up and dancing. And so I'm really excited to have her back this year. I hope that that gets to be another Telluride tradition. Finally, Lyle Lovett and his large band will close out the festival on Sunday night. With performances from Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, Jerry Douglas and Tommy Emmanuel, Ripe, Mighty Popular, Peter Rowan, and the sensational Barnes Brothers earlier in the day. Planet Bluegrass will be back in Telluride next week for one final day of local ticket sales. Tickets will be available for anyone who lives or works in San Miguel County. So if you're listening and you previously have not qualified for those local tickets because you don't live within the county, that's now no longer an issue. So as long as you bring your proof of employment, then we're all set. We're just really looking forward to hanging at Coto on Saturday and seeing everybody and hopefully the weather is good. The final day of local ticket sales will take place on Saturday, March 9th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Coto. On Bridalville, 10,000 feet above the sound. The news came around and sent me to count all my blessings and to thank you for all the good friends that I. Parklets are coming back for another summer in Telluride. At one time, a temporary provision of the pandemic outdoor dining explosion, the structures have now become a mainstay of town's summer dining scene. But this year, the structures could look a bit different. We've increased requirements for the standards, uh, materials that are used, uh, high-quality canvas, marine grade, uh, fire retardant, and um, no vinyls. Uh, which would be a little bit of a, it will affect some of the parklets that were out there uh, last year. Solid muted colors or colors that would be compatible with the restaurant theme. That's Telluride Planning Director Ron Corals speaking at town council last week. The updated rules surrounding materials are just one part of town's efforts to update its parklet regulations as the structures become more permanent. It's time, says Quarles, to discuss possible changes to make the parklet experience a little better for everyone. One innovation brought forward by council, bring more bike parking to Main Street by allowing businesses to fill leftover space at the end of their parklet with a bike rack. If a fraction of a parking space is not utilized for the parklet, but is utilized for bicycle parking, the parklet user will only have to pay for the fraction that's used for the parklet and not the full parking space. So it's a little bit little bit of an incentive. There has also been some concern about the safety of canopy and tent structures, given both the frequency of severe wind down Main Street and the issue of sight lines for drivers and pedestrians. Town council members discuss banning canopies outright, but ultimately decide to leave them. However, we, we have added new language that umbrellas would be the preferred shading uh, structure. 
The new regulations also limit a restaurant's parklet to the width of its Main Street storefront. All these changes became an issue during public comment as local businesses stepped forward. Megan Osla, owner of The Butcher and Baker, explained the predicament of many restaurants. Three years ago when we were allowed to put parklets together, there was no promise that they were going to carry on past one season. Um, at that point, all of us invested very little money. They were short-lived. And then the following year, which is the year this most recent set of rules came about, we were sort of promised a more lengthy period of time. Um, We invested an incredible amount of money in our parklet. Oslo's parklet extends three feet in front of her neighbor's storefront with their permission. Meanwhile, other business owners have invested heavily in a permanent canopy structure. Council recognizes changing the rules now and forcing businesses to entirely rebuild would be costly. So the rule around parklet width matching a business storefront will take effect only for new parklets going forward. Businesses can also keep existing or even install new canopy shade structures, but the sides must be kept rolled up unless there's actively inclement weather. Mayor Teddy Erico recognizes the rule is imperfect. He says, I mean, the enforcement isn't going to be next to near impossible. And I realize it's a little bit of a headache on the businesses that, you know, in monsoon season, it rains for an hour. It's sunny for an hour. It rains for an hour. And that's a little bit of a challenge. But we can at least see if they can try. I mean, because I, I agree when all the walls are down, not only is it a safety issue, it doesn't look like historic Telluride Main Street. Council voted unanimously to approve the new regulations. Parklets can go up for the season around Memorial Day weekend, which is just about three months away. It's the morning after a storm in Telluride. The sky is still faint blue in the early hours. The first rays of sun on the western slopes have yet to descend into Town Park. And down here along the river, the air is frigid. It's not the type of day that one would naturally go swimming, but gathered on the rocky and ice-bound banks of the San Miguel, a dozen or so folks are stripping down to do just that. With a gasp and a wince, each of these polar plungers crouches into the rushing San Miguel for a three-minute soak. Alex Ward emerges, dripping into the embrace of her towel. Um, How do you feel? I feel um, energized. And cold. <laughs> that, does it feel the same every time or different every time? Um, I don't know. I feel like it starts feeling better and better and better. I've been off for a week and a half, or a week and a half, and so it was a little chillier today. Ward is one of the first of this polar plunging group, which has grown throughout the winter into a dozen regulars who meet each Tuesday and Thursday at 8 a.m. sharp. Ashley Shupp was an early subscriber to Telluride's polar plunge movement as well. Her inspiration? It was actually my friend, Lena. She lives here, and she was doing it. Her husband was doing it for like 10, 15 minutes in the summer. And I started doing it, and I loved it. And then these girls started joining me, and they kind of started it back up in the winter. And it's been amazing. Like... Best part of my day is hanging out with all these crazies. Originally a summertime practice amongst two or three friends, Lauren Ross says as the temps dropped last November and December, she and her fellow plungers started to embrace the cold and the winter coming and, of course, the health benefits. 
And it became addicting and it ballooned into this and such a great community of people and getting together in a non-judgmental, positive way of encouragement. Cold water swimming has a rich tradition in Nordic countries and across Europe. It's practiced by some as a daily exercise to increase vigor in mood. Sutton Schuler started plunging this winter on the invitation of a friend. It's scary at first, and then it truly is one of the most invigorating things I've ever done. I love it. I'm totally addicted, and who would have ever thought that a three- to four minute routine could like severely impact your whole day and in so many ways. Those impacts? Mood boost, metabolism boost, energy, and honestly this like amazing community that a lot of the people I didn't know until we all got semi-naked in the river. Despite the frigid air and water, she has warm words for the little community. I mean, yeah, I'm meeting so many people and the people that are coming out of the woodwork to join us, it's been impressive and I encourage anyone who's interested just to come and give it a try. You don't have to do three minutes or five minutes like Giovanni just did but I think coming and being here and being vulnerable and nervous is really important for us all. Just as quickly as they came the plungers start packing up stuffing toes into slippers and heading off on their day with bright eyes and rosy cheeks. As they disperse, the sweet, warm yellow of the rising sun is just now sliding down Main Street towards Town Park. Access to public lands is one of the many beauties of southwest Colorado. But what are they? How did they get created and who manages them? That will be the topic of conversation at a History of U.S. Public Lands event this week. Co-hosted by Sheep Mountain Alliance and the Wilkinson Public Library, the event will feature Walt Dabney, a former National Park Service superintendent and Texas State Park director. With over half a century of experience working for the National Park Service, Dabney has worked at some of the country's most esteemed national parks and helped to develop national monument programs. Dabney's presentation will focus on the origin story of public lands in the U.S., the Constitution and statehood acts and public lands, how public lands became privately owned, the economic value of public lands, and why most public lands are in the West. The History of U.S. Public Lands presentation will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Thursday, February 29th at 5.30 p.m. The Lone Cone Library in Norwood is introducing a new position, and with it, a new staff member. Donna de la Cruz joins the library as the Spanish-speaking liaison, Norwood's first librarian, brought on specifically to serve the area's Spanish speakers. De la Cruz moved to Norwood last fall from Tulsa, Oklahoma, but she was born in Glenwood Canyon and grew up in Montrose. Colorado is one step closer to getting lower-cost prescription drugs from Canada. Governor Jared Polis said Tuesday that an updated importation plan has been submitted to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The federal government has to approve the plan before the state can start importing prescription drugs. It's not clear when the FDA will make a decision, but Polis urged a speedy approval. The state's initial plan was submitted in December 2022. Florida became the first state to get the green light to import drugs from Canada when the FDA approved its plan in January. 
State lawmakers are considering a bill that would make it a crime to falsify votes from the Electoral College during a presidential race. KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports is one of several measures intended to increase election security ahead of November's election. Each state has a group of electors who officially cast votes for president. In 2020, supporters of former President Donald Trump organized fake electors in an attempt to change that election's outcome. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold says even though the attempts failed, they threatened to undermine the entire election process. If the fake elector scheme would have worked, it would have disenfranchised 81 million American voters who cast a ballot for the presidential candidate who won. The bill would make it a class one misdemeanor to serve as a fake elector or to organize fake electors. It's one of the first of its kind in the U.S. Another election reform bill pending at the Capitol would make it illegal to distribute so-called deepfakes, AI-generated images or videos of candidates. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the state capitol. An unusual water auction took place recently in northern Colorado for the first time in five years, and the public got to watch. The water rights came from a recently sold farm in Longmont, and as Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Maeve Conran reports, prices were unusually low, despite water being a diminishing resource in the West. A crowd packed a barn at the Boulder County Fairgrounds earlier this month. It was a mix of farmers, ranchers, developers, and local government representatives. They were there to buy water from the Colorado Big Thompson Project, or CBT, as it's also called. This is water that originates at the headwaters of the Colorado River, high in the Rocky Mountains. It's then piped east across the Continental Divide to quench the thirst of cities and farms in northeastern Colorado. All eyes were fixed on Scott Schumann, the auctioneer holding court at the front of the room. Today we offered 90 units of Colorado Big Thompson, 90 water units, so it's basically an acre foot of water is what each one of the certificates represent. One acre foot is equal to the amount of water it takes to cover an acre of land one foot deep, and winners get access to that amount of water annually. But to be eligible for the water rights, the 42 registered bidders here today had to be approved ahead of time by the Northern Water District. Schumann says this stops any type of stockpiling or speculation around water prices. You can't just come in and invest in water. You have to have a use for it. 465, I'm going to be 46.5. We'll post the bid, $46,000. That's $46,000 per unit. And that's what many of the units were going for. It might seem like a lot, but... Honestly, if you went back and looked at that auction sale five years ago, those prices were actually higher. That's Jeff Stala, a spokesperson for Northern Water. He says prices of Big Thompson Water can fluctuate for a variety of reasons, including the fact that new reservoirs under construction are making many water users less reliant on the supplemental water supply that these shares offer. And so some of the larger communities are looking at that as a future water solution. In recent years, Colorado Big Thompson water shares have fetched more than $70,000 per unit. That's close to the price that the auction's first bidder paid. John Staley was first out of the gate and secured a unit of water for $72,000. 
It actually was my first water auction. Staley is the executive director of the Colorado Future Farmers of America Foundation. He bought the water for use on the FFA's farm in Berthoud that provides educational programming for youth in agriculture. And around uh, northern Colorado, every time there is development, it creates a, uh, a problem of getting more water down the ditch. Growing demand for water paired with drier conditions means farmers can't always rely on current water supplies. So we bought this water as an augmentation for um, the future delivery of our water. In fact, all the bidders at the auction were buying water shares to supplement their existing water supplies. That's because water rights from the Big Thompson Project can only be purchased by those who have an existing water supply. They can never be the primary source of water, says Northern Water's Jeff Stela. It's basically adding to the supply that you already have available through your irrigation company or your irrigation water rights. In addition to those interested in securing a water share, some were there as observers, keen to see how much the water shares would ultimately go for. Laura Emerson is the secretary-treasurer of the Water Association of the Rockies, a small organisation of landowners along the Big Thompson River. They lease Colorado Big Thompson units from Riverside Irrigation. And our lease is a 30-year lease and it adjusts every five years based on the average selling price of CBT units like we saw today. And so we keep track of what they'll sell for so then we can compare when they say, well, this is how much your lease is going up, then we can say, well, okay, yeah, we agree that that's how much it should. The whole process wraps up within the hour, with all 90 shares of water sold to six farmers, four dairies, two developers and two municipalities. The total cost? More than $4.7 million. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Maeve Conran. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a clear night tonight with a low around 15 degrees. Thursday calls for sunny skies with a high near 40. Expect a clear night Thursday with a low near 20. Sun returns Friday with breezy conditions and a high around 40 degrees, followed by a partly cloudy night with a low around 25. This has been the news for Wednesday, February 28th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hello, San Miguel County Republicans. This is Harley Brookitching telling you about our caucuses. Our Republican caucuses are honored in a tradition and will be held on March 8 at 6 p.m. at Norwood Town Hall, immediately followed by convening our San Miguel County Assembly. This year's Republican presidential primary in Colorado is facing unprecedented opposition to our voting rights, and San Miguel County Republicans are making unprecedented changes to our caucus procedures. We're centralizing the caucus dialogue. We need all of you there um, and instead of individual precincts. The change will allow for discussion and participation on a much larger scale. Individual precinct voting will be maintained, followed by our county assembly with delegates elected from the individual caucus voting.
We'll see you on, at our caucuses and assembly on March 8, 2024, 6 p.m., Norwood Town Hall. If you have a question, please ring me, Harley Brookitching, 970-729-0410. Thank you. Hello, lovely Koto listeners. Claire from Telluride Chamber Music here to tell you all about an unmissable concert we have coming up on March 1st. Following the phenomenal performance by the New York Philharmonic Brass Quintet last summer, Telluride Chamber Music is once again bringing musicians from the country's most renowned orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, to Telluride. This concert on March 1st will feature music for flute and harp, performed by Mindy Kaufman and June Han, and is co-presented by Palm Arts. Flute and harp is a timeless and beautiful combination of instruments. The program will feature a traditional first half with music by composers such as J.S. Bach, and then the second half will take the audience on a trip around the world with Spanish, tango and Cuban-influenced pieces. Don't miss out on this amazing concert. March 1st, 7pm at the Michael D. Palm Theatre. Get your tickets now at telluridechambermusic.org. Advanced tickets are $40 for adults, $20 for students, and then tickets on the door are just $5 more. Thank you and see you there. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.